0: Thanks, Josh. Well, good morning. My name is Luke. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to match the intensity and excitement of that survey moment. All right, so hopefully the survey this sermon will just it, I don't know if we can quite I don't know if we can quite get to it, but we'll try to get to. Uh, that level of excitement uh, this is uh, we 're on the back half of our study of the book of titus we 've been working our way through it uh, for the last month or so, and uh, today we 're getting to a passage that I am really, really excited to preach it 's a very important passage in this book, and uh, there 's three reasons why i 'm particularly excited to get into these verses, verses eleven to fifteen. The first you just find right there in verse fifteen. Uh, Paul summarizes this section. Uh, saying this, verse 15, "'Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority,' let no one disregard you. Now, those verbs there, declare, exhort, rebuke, let no one disregard you, those those verbs are all commands and they're all present tense commands. Uh, The Apostle Paul who has started this church on the island of Crete, he's now handed it off to this guy that he's been training, that he's been pouring into named Titus. He's written this letter uh, so that this church would grow healthy, they'd grow in their faith, they'd grow in their knowledge of the truth, they'd grow in their godliness and he's been giving Titus instructions and now he gets to the point after what we're going to look at today and he says, Titus, don't ever stop declaring this. That's what present tense means. It means keep doing it, not just one time, not just occasionally. Keep always declaring this. Keep always exhorting this. Keep always rebuking when things come against this. Let no one disregard you, Titus, over This So there's a lot of urgency even in what Paul's saying. What we're looking at today here verses, uh, particularly 11 to 14, there's just incredible urgency here. If we're going to be a healthy church, we have to get what Paul's doing and talking about in verses 11 to 14. Here's a second reason, is that the truth that we're going to explore here today has really significantly shaped our church. Redemption as a whole, but Redemption Gateway in particular... There's a phrase you'll hear from time to time, it's a little bit insider language, but it's meaningful to us, which is that we're a gospel-centered church. We're centered around the good news of the gospel. And this is a very gospel-centered passage. This is a passage that really helps us understand not just how we believe the gospel to sort of begin a relationship with God, but how we lean into and draw resources from the gospel, from the good news of Jesus, all throughout our lives. We've said it this way, that the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is the A to Z of Christianity. It's not the front door that then you graduate to something deeper. The entire Christian life is plunging deeper into the truth of this simple gospel. And so this passage really has shaped our church because of of its gospel centrality. And then the third reason is just kind of a personal one. I had a bit of an epiphany this week, and uh, you'll see in a minute why that's a very intentional word. I I was studying this. Our our staff went uh, to Prescott for a couple days early in the week for just kind of a staff retreat, getting on the same page as we head into summer and and then fall after that and stuff like that. And uh, Tuesday morning, I was in this coffee shop, this little cool coffee shop in Prescott, just studying this passage. And this is a passage I've looked at before, it's a passage I've studied before, it's a passage I've appreciated for a lot of the reasons I'm going to share today before, but there was something I saw in it that I'd never seen before. And when I saw it, I'm actually, I'm in the coffee shop and I've got my headphones in and I'm, and I, and I, when I saw it, I went, ha! And then I realized I did that out loud. And I don't know if people, I didn't see anyone, it was still early, I don't know if anyone glanced up and, and saw me, but, but that was my reaction. When I saw this, it was like, <laughs> wow, this is amazing, I've never seen this before, this adds so much light to this passage So this is going to be a good text for us to dive into today, and uh, i 'm looking forward to it to kind of recap the argument that paul 's been making up to this point we said he, he wrote this to try to help us have a healthy church in chapter one he talked about healthy leadership is full of character is willing to confront when uh, people are out of line but then in chapter two he talked about that a healthy church has healthy relationships and healthy a uh, character at home that that a, a a healthy church is made up of older men and older Older women and younger women and younger men and servants and uh, all sorts of people, leaders, all sorts of people who are to to live a certain way. And that's what we looked at last week in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And if you weren't here, uh, the theme that runs through all of that, there was all these character qualities, older men be like this, older women be like this, younger women be like this, younger men be like this, da-da-da-da-da. And the common thread that ran through the whole thing was be self-controlled. Because the world is watching. Paul had said, look back in chapter 2, verse 5. You've got to live in a self-controlled, honorable way, verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. The world around is watching, and if you live in a way that's out of control, they're going to say, hey, your message isn't true. Verse 8, Paul told Titus, hey, you live in a self-controlled way so that opponents may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 10, servants were supposed to live in a self-controlled, God-honoring way, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So there was a lot of pressure last week, wasn't there? If you're here, like, you need to be self-controlled. You need to live a life of high moral character. And the world is watching. Their understanding and appreciation of the gospel is largely going to be informed by the sermons we preach with our lives. And I know some of you are like, oh my gosh, that's overwhelming. How do I... What do I do with that? And, and in particular, how then do I live a self-controlled, upright, godly life? How do I do that? And, and the, the approach that many people use is the approach of just willpower. I'm going to be self-controlled. I'm going to be godly. I'm going to be upright. I'm going to say no to bad things, yes to good things. It's sort of the stop it approach to things. Right? When you're home go go home and get on YouTube and Google Bob Newhart stop it. There's a hilarious video where Bob Newhart's a counselor and his counsel for everything is stop it. Stop it. Stop it. And that's a lot of our approach to change. And yet the reality is, stop it doesn't work. Because often in focusing on what we want to stop, we end up actually wanting to do it more, right? Like how many of us and, and don't raise your hand I, Because if there's not many of you, it'll really make me feel bad. I think it's most of us. How many of us, when we see a sign that says, wet paint, don't touch? (laughs) Yeah, it's wet, you know, right? That's... Right? Like there's just something about it. like, oh, that, that, that law, that, that rule just makes me go, oh, I want to break it. I want to go there. I want to try it, right? And so the stop it approach doesn't work. We need something deeper, something better. If we're going to live godly, upright, self-controlled lives that the world is going to watch and see the beauty of Christ, what's going to give us the power to do it? Well, verse 11 says the answer. Verses 11 and 12. What's going to work? What's going to bring this about? Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What is going to train us to renounce ungodliness and live self-controlled, upright, godly lives? What is it? It is the grace of God. Uh, go, go back to the last slide for a second. You can come back to this in a minute. The grace of God has appeared. The grace of God is what's going to train us for un, to say no to ungodliness. That's the answer. So what's going to give us the power? It's not stop it. It's not rules. It's not moral fortitude. It is grace. The grace of God has appeared. But here's the question that I've been wrestling with in the weeks leading up to this sermon. If it's true that the grace of God trains us to say no to ungodliness and to live self-controlled, godly, upright lives, if, if it's grace that gives us that power, then why does it seem like so often grace actually gives us permission to say yes to ungodliness? Right grace the way it is often and rightly described grace is unmerited favor undeserved favor it's 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 you can't deserve it you didn't earn it you didn't work for it this is god smiling on you this is god showing you his favor this is god giving you his forgiveness this is god giving you his presence and you don't deserve it that's what grace is that's how we talk about grace right that that grace is so big amazing grace How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, right? I didn't deserve it, I'm a worm, I'm a sinner and now grace comes into my life and I'm forgiven and I am so cleansed that God has forgiven my past sins and my present sins and my future sins and grace is so significant that God is holding on to me because, right, listen, if you could lose your salvation, you would, but God in his grace is holding on to us, right? So, so grace comes, this free forgiveness. Complete guarantee of God's future forgiveness. And I find in my life, and as I talk to people, that that kind of get out of everything free card often actually seems to give us permission to sin. It even at times maybe feels like, well, I'll just ask for forgiveness, right? Paul, in a number of his letters, said that one of the main oppositions, one of the main uh, things that people had said to him as they kind of interacted with his message about grace was they would say, well, should we go on sinning that grace would abound? And it's not a bad question. I mean, do you relate to this at all? That grace actually seem, if we really understand grace, like we are really, truly, totally forgiven, not on the basis of anything we do, but purely on the basis of God. Doesn't that then actually invite us to sin? Or at least say, hey, if you sin, it's no big deal. You got grace. So how then can Paul say that the grace of God has appeared training us to say no to ungodliness when it seems like the grace of God has appeared training us to say hey ungodliness is no big deal and and here's the thing most people see that conundrum they see that dilemma just like I see it just like you see it where they say hey if if we really understand grace it's going to actually empower people to sin and their answer to it is so we better get some rules We better dress a certain way. We better avoid a certain kind of media. We better better just tighten this thing up a little bit because if, yeah, 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 grace is good, but, 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 if you really understand grace, yeah, yeah, let's get some rules. And that's one approach that I think actually leads eventually to the stop it version of change. It doesn't work. And so maybe the other approach is to say, Perhaps we're not really understanding grace. What does Paul mean when he says the grace of God has appeared, bringing us salvation, training us to renounce ungodliness? What is he talking about? Well, here's the uh, epiphany that I had, and that word is intentional because you can go back to the 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 slide with the passage. Uh, The word epiphany here shows up twice in this passage. It's the word appeared. Uh, in, in verse 11, it's the, the verb form of it. In verse 13, it's the noun form of it. But it's this, for the grace of God has epiphanied. It's shown up, it's made an appearance, it's broken in. The grace of God has, has made an, has epiphanied, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the epiphany of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what that word is. It's the word where we get the word epiphany. It means to bring into sight, to bring into view. And so the epiphany that I had this week was connecting the grace of God that that has appeared in the past with the glory of God that is going to appear in the future. Now think about that. We believe that Jesus died on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins, that he rose from the dead. He then spent some time with his disciples. He then ascended to the right hand of his father and he is coming back. We wait for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, listen, when the glory, verse 13, when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, when it appears, how will it appear? It'll appear In Jesus, right? It won't just be a light. It won't just be a sound. It will be light. It will be sound, but it will be light and sound surrounding who? Jesus. So the coming glory of God, the coming appearing of God is Jesus. That was it. So if the coming, future appearing of the glory of God is the coming of Jesus, then the past appearance of the grace of God is Jesus. 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 And perhaps the reason why the grace of God has not really trained us to renounce ungodliness is because we've thought of the grace of God as a concept. We've thought of the grace of God as an idea. And God sent the grace of God as a person. Amen. Notice John three sixteen. everybody's favorite verse. You see it at the football game. It does not say, for God so loved the world that he sent a concept. For God so loved the world that he sent a philosophy. No, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. Jesus is the grace of God. And it's only when we embrace the grace of God personally that then we have the power to be changed, right? If it's just a concept, I can ignore a concept. If it's just an idea, well, ideas are interesting. I can be captivated by them, but they don't really grip my heart. Philosophy, I can get real into that and that's fun to debate and talk about, but, but what grips your heart are people, It's that relationship you had with a coach that made you want to run through a wall for him. It's that relationship you had with a teacher that inspired you to push through how difficult it was when you were learning to read. It's that relationship that you have with a parent, that you have with a friend, that makes you go, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to try hard. I'm going to go for it. And it's a relationship with a person, grace personified in jesus that makes us change i I, am probably worse than most of you i just full-on agree that and uh my wife would tell you that that's true and one of the things that i do that really drives my wife crazy is um is i like to explore stuff that isn't really ready to be explored Um, So, like, down the street here at Queen Creek Marketplace, across the street, you have this new development, right? And there's going to be a Sprouts, and there's a Starbucks, and there's going to be all sorts of stuff. And it is clearly not ready to be explored. (laughs) But I don't care. And so, right, there's cones, and there's ropes, and there's things that just tell you, there's construction, there's things that tell you, stay out of here, you're not welcome, it's not ready yet, which to me is just an invitation. I, I can't wait, right? And so... I just tell Molly all the time, if you act like you belong there, no one gives you a hard time, you know, even if you pull up in, you know, your little boxy Scion. <laughs> that doesn't look like a construction vehicle. I'm actually going there th- uh, the other day, riding through it with my firstborn, uh, who is a lot like her mother, and, um, and she's like, Dad, you really shouldn't be here. And I said, well, it's interesting. I want to do it. And she said, well, this is, is this going to go on my permanent record? <laughs> I had to tell her, Abby, there there really is no such thing as a permanent record. Like that doesn't exist. Unless you like, you know, get arrested and break the law. She's like, well then this is gonna start my permanent record. Because we're gonna get arrested. And what's interesting is every time I see a sign, every time I see a cone, every time I see a rope, those things are saying, Hey, stay out of here. You don't belong here, you shouldn't do this. I don't care. But when I pull up and there's a person there that says, hey, don't go back here. It's not safe. It's not ready. You don't, don't do it, please. Now, I'm not saying every time I'll do what the person says. <laughs> but I'm much more likely to listen. I'm much more likely to say, okay, that's right. Because it's harder to, to, to just totally reject a person, especially if it's a person I care about, than it is to reject a sign, than it is to reject cones. And I think for so many Christians, the grace of God has empowered sin. It's empowered ungodliness because we just see it as sort of some cones. We see it as a sign. We see it as a concept. Some of the indications of this might be if you really like to read the Bible and you like to read theology or Christian books, but you don't pray, it might be that the grace of God is more of a concept than a person for you. If you want to debate and you want to argue about issues, be they theological or political or social or all sorts of philosophies of things, but you don't like to share Jesus, it could be that your experience of the grace of God is as a concept, not a person. And Paul here is saying, the person of Jesus has appeared. And if you if it sinks into us, that the person of Jesus has appeared, then this passage tells us that three things will happen. And there's probably more that we could look at, but this passage says, when you embrace Jesus as the grace of God, there's some things that are gonna take place. Here's the first one. When you embrace Jesus as the grace of God, not as a concept, but he is the grace of God, then number one, you love that he frees and cleanses all kinds of people. When Jesus, as a person, as the grace of God is real, you begin to love that he frees and cleanses all kinds of people. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Now, when Paul here says all people, he doesn't mean every individual person, because he's already said in this letter and in lots of his other letters that there are people who reject Jesus, that there are people that don't want anything to do with Jesus, that there are people who actually persecute the cause of Jesus. And Paul makes it clear that if people persist in that, they will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? This is not Paul saying that that Jesus has come in the grace of God to universally save everyone. The Bible doesn't teach that. Paul didn't believe it. So what does he mean? When he says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, he's saying, listen, I grew up as a Jewish boy, he's saying, and, and my view of things was that God came for the Jews. And God came maybe for the Gentiles who were willing to become Jewish. But now that the grace of God has appeared to me as a person of Jesus, I see That all people means that this is available not just to Jews, not just to men, not just to the people like me. This is available now to all people. And this salvation that is brought, it says in verse 14, what was that? That was Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus came to free and to cleanse all kinds of people. In chapter 2, it was men, women, young, old, slave, free. You read the book of Revelation. Revelation 7 verse 9 talks about there being this gathering before the throne of Jesus with people from every tribe and tongue and nation crying out, salvation belongs to our God. Worthy are you, O Lamb, for you were slain and you purchased for God people from every tribe and tongue and nation, right? That's the offer of the gospel that people everywhere, all over can experience grace, can experience this unmerited favor of God in a relationship with Jesus. One of the most famous stories that Jesus told about this actually came when he was doing a lot of teaching and there were a number of the religious people listening in and they didn't like that Jesus offer of himself seemed to be so open to all kinds of people they didn't like it so he told a series of parables you can read them in Luke 15 and in Luke chapter 15 he closes with one of the most famous parables he's ever told which is the parable of a man who had two sons and there was a rebellious younger son who came to his father and said, Father, I want my inheritance now. I wish you were dead. Give me all your stuff. I want your stuff, but I don't want you. I'm getting my stuff. I'm going to Vegas. And then there's the older brother who was faithful, and he stayed home, and he did all the work, and he picked up the slack. And, he, right, and it's these two sons. And it's a story about how this younger rebellious brother, comes to his senses when he realizes that all of his life of pleasure and all of the life that money could buy him just didn't add up to much. And he realizes, I had it better off as a, if I were just a servant with my dad. And so he says, I'm going to go back to my dad. I'm going to say, Dad, just hire me. I know I can't be your son anymore, but just hire me. I'll work for you. Maybe I'll even pay off this debt of all the stuff that I took. You know, can I just come back? And he comes back. And while he's still a long way off, it says, his father saw him, and ran to him, and hugged him, and embraced him, and and threw a party for him. And the whole point of that part of the story is that Jesus came for rebellious younger brothers. Jesus came for people who are filled with lying, and hypocrisy, and lust, and homosexuality, and fornication and jealousy, and disobedience to parents, and all kinds of sin, all of it. He he came for that. And then the story concludes, actually, with the older, prideful brother, who's looking at this going, how could this guy experience this grace? And yet the father goes out to him and says, come into the party as well. You come in. You come be part of it. And the religious people who heard the story, they hated it. They couldn't stand that story. Why? Because they knew God as a concept. They had not embraced Jesus as a person. Now, this is good news because you realize he frees and cleanses people like me and like you. And it also means that we begin to have hope and excitement and encouragement for God's grace to people at our work, to people in our neighborhood, to people that we would not want anything to do with. When you embrace the grace of God in Jesus, you love that he frees and cleanses all kinds of people. Here's the second thing, is you begin to experience his presence from grace to Glory. Right? This is what Paul is, is making this point, right? He's saying the grace of God has appeared, the glory of God is going to appear. And we're now in this point where we are renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, we're living self-controlled, upright, godly lives, and we are waiting for our blessed hope. We're here, we're focused on him. He gave himself for us, he purified us, he cleansed us. We're waiting now for him. We live in between. And I don't know about you, but one of the, one of the most thrilling and yet, disappointing things about following Christ is that we're stuck in this in between. And it's thrilling because the kingdom of God really has come, God really has shown up. We begin to experience answers to prayer. Sometimes we experience healing. Sometimes we experience just total transformation of a person that you can't explain any other way, right? And the kingdom of God has come and it's really here and yet it's not fully here. And that's one of the most disappointing things. And so we still experience pain and death and depression and anxiety, And loss of relationships and abuse and all sorts of things that you just look and you go, God, how long? God, how long? And yet, when the grace of God isn't just a concept, but when the grace of God is a person, you realize in the midst of all that good and in the midst of all that bad, Jesus is here with me he's present, he's for me, he's sustaining me, he's nurturing me, he's caring for me, he's here now. If the grace of God's a concept, then you look at it and you go, God, well, if you're really gracious, how can all this happen? How, could you, how come you could just leave us? And, and, and you leave us and all this bad stuff happens. But if the grace of God is a person, then you realize God hasn't left us. God is here and he's now. And so lean into him and draw on the strength that he's ready to give you. Here's how Tim Keller describes this. He's an author and pastor. He says, God doesn't give us hypothetical grace in lifetime supply. He gives us what we need today, one day at a time. Right? This word training, actually, in verse 12, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, that word training is a present tense thing. He's constantly training us with his grace. He's constantly educating us, forming us with his grace. It's not a one-stop, lifetime supply, you're done. It's day by day by day experiencing the grace of a relationship with Jesus. Well, here's a third thing that happens. If grace goes from being a concept to being a person, is that you start saying no to ungodliness and yes to good works. You start saying, and not just no, you start saying no to ungodliness and yes to good works, right? These are very emphatic. Ideas, let me show you these. Verse 12, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Renounce is a serious, big word. It's not just saying uh, God's grace is training us to, uh, eh, I guess not, to ungodliness. Or, well, maybe to ungodly. No, it's to renounce it. I don't want anything to do with it, right? If you renounce your citizenship, You're saying, I'm not a citizen here anymore. If you renounce your family, you say, I don't want anything to do with them anymore, right? Renouncing is a big deal. This is saying that Jesus has appeared and he's constantly training us to say, no, I I don't want anything to do with ungodliness. I don't want to do anything with worldly passions. I don't want to do anything with things that have separated me from him. I don't want it, no. And then yes, to good works, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, right? That's where we get the yes, zealous. That, that word is not, uh, he's creating a people for his own possession who are fine with good works. He's creating a people for his own possession who, you know, once in a while they do good works, He's creating a people for his own possession who they're encouraged by good works. No. He's creating a people who are zealous for good works, who are excited for good works, who are passionate for good works, who are so eager to bring more of God's blessing and grace into the world that it's like, yes, that's what I want. Now, if you, like me, are sitting here going, that doesn't feel like my experience. Doesn't feel like the week that I had last week. No to ungodliness. Yes to good works. Ho oh, ho. Right? Like, <laughs> pin the blue ribbon on his chest. He did it perfectly, right? That's not me. Why? Why well, no for me? When I'm not zealous for good works or definitive that I want to say no to ungodliness, it's often because I'm not close to Jesus, not to grace as a concept. It's not because my theology changed, it's because my, my, my closeness, my communion, my dependence on Jesus has shifted. But you know it when you are close to Jesus, when you've walked with Jesus, when you sense that he is with you and he's near and he loves you and there's nothing you could do that would make him love you more and there's nothing you would do that could make him love you less and you treasure him. When you are in those moments, you know the last thing you want to do is sin. And the biggest thing you want to do is love other people. That's what good works are. Right, So that may not be your experience last week. That may not be your experience all the time, but you've tasted that. And you know that that's what Jesus is trying to do in us is get us to renounce ungodliness and be zealous for good works. Now we gotta understand some of this good work stuff and we'll talk about this more in a few weeks as well because uh, Paul's gonna say a very similar thing in chapter three, verse eight. But it's really helpful here uh, to maybe understand the difference between legalism and license and the gospel. So I know those maybe are churchy words or things you don't understand. Let me explain them. Here's what legalism is. Legalism is what we do leads to who we are. So in legalism, I obey because then God will accept me. I do the right thing because then I have a good status or standing with God. What I do leads to who I am. Right, so when I'm very, very good, I feel good about myself. When I'm bad, I hang my head, I don't show up, I don't smile, I don't praise, I don't, right? Legalism, a lot of you grew up in an environment that was legalistic. There was a lot of, hey, you gotta do this, or else. Right, that's legalism. Now, once you experience the grace of God, and oftentimes when you experience it just as a concept, then you go into license. This is sort of the opposite extreme. You go, I'm done with all those rules, what we do doesn't matter. That's license. What I do doesn't matter. Good works doesn't matter. If I'm not saved on the basis of good works, who cares? What I do doesn't matter. What I do doesn't make any difference. Is that what you hear Paul saying? The grace of God has appeared. Go be a Cretan. What, what you do doesn't matter. That's not what he says. No, instead, the gospel is, this is at the heart of gospel centrality. The gospel says who we are leads to what we do. So it's not that what I do, if I do the right thing, then I'll be a child of the king. In the gospel, it's I'm a child of the king, so I do the right thing. It's a totally different paradigm. It's not legalism. And it's not licensed, and it's not even somewhere in between. It's something totally different. Tim Chester's written a helpful commentary on Titus. Here's what he says there. He says, we do not do good so that we can become Christ's people. Christ makes us his people so that we become eager to do good. What do you mean? How, how, How do we know we're his people? Well, look. Look at what it says in verse 14. Jesus gave himself For us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, for his own possession, Jesus came to give God a people, to give God a family, to give God children, loving, faithful, royal children. Read this incredible story about Queen Elizabeth, the queen mother. Uh, She's the mother of now Queen Elizabeth. And she had this saying that she would say to her kids when they were about to go out. She'd say, royal children have royal manners. Royal children have royal manners. She didn't say have good manners so you can be a royal child. She said you are a royal child, so have good manners. That's the exact same thing Paul's saying. Paul's saying, listen, you've been cleansed, you've been purified, you've been washed. You're a royal child. You're a person of his own possession. So be zealous for good works. Say no to ungodliness. Embrace good things. See, this all comes down to how you understand the gospel. It all comes down to whether Christianity is a concept or a person. Uh, Matthew and Josh and I are going through a seminary program right now And it's been incredible Lots of just really good scholars and academics with wonderful hearts We've learned so much through it And we read these books and you know you have these conversations And you can start to feel like you're Oh wow I'm really getting in the deep end of the pool Or yeah you know But, But what I love about these professors And especially the man Mike who helps lead the whole program Is he's constantly bringing it back to the simplicity of the gospel. And one of my favorite things that he shared with us is the way he shares the gospel with kids. You know, Jesus had a heart for kids. Jesus loved kids. And he said, if you, if you aren't like a child, you can't be my disciple. And you know how Mike shares the gospel with kids? He, sa- he says, here it is. Here's the gospel. It's Jesus saying, come, come. Or it's Jesus saying, I love you. Right, actually, do this this with me, all right? Everybody stand up. We're gonna do this. You're gonna hit your neighbor, that's all right. All right, ready? It's three parts. First part, I I love you. Second part, come follow me. Third part. Please don't ever walk away from me. Let's do it again. All right? Ready? Come, follow me. Oh, no, I did it wrong. See if you're paying attention. All right, here we go. It doesn't start there. I love you. Come, follow me. Please don't ever walk away from me. You can sit down. That's the gospel. It's Jesus saying, I love you. Come follow me. Please don't walk away. And because we experience the love of Jesus, because we see that following him is a path of joy and of blessing and of life, we begin to renounce ungodliness. We don't want to walk away. And we follow him, zealous for good works. Isn't that good news? Let's pray.